Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. This is episode 34 in our series for 2017, and today's date is Friday the 22nd of September. And Leon, this week we're talking to Mike Garrett. That's right, Mike Garrett is the founder of Adelaide air conditioning software company Delft Red simulation technology. He's going to be talking to us about how his company is growing with strong international demand. He's doing very well. And then from then on, uh, Nicholas Gruen. That's right. All about decision making in government. Be a nice idea if they did make a decision. That's right. That's... All right. Now let's listen to Mike Garrett. Mike Garrett, you run a company called Delft Red and you're selling a product that sounds like something from Star Wars. It's Plantroid, meaning droid, I guess. Yeah. Android, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'll get back to a Star Wars story in just a minute. <laughs> um, but the idea of Android is that uh, you can design anything you need to on a house plan. So uh, it starts off, uh, and in fact, the, the main focus of the software is you can design um, uh, domestic to light commercial uh, air conditioning systems, mostly ducted, but all sorts of uh, any sort of air conditioning system that you need. And the idea is you have a house plan. Uh, you can scale the plan, and then you can draw on the components that you need for your for the thing you're constructing. Usually, air conditioning, but it can also be piping or electronics or um, really virtually anything. Um, but the focus is for for air conditioning. Um, and because it's you're working on a scaled house plan, the parts you drop in are all to scale. You can connect them all up. Uh, the program can do a lot of smarts. You can do uh, uh, heat load calculations, airflow calculations. And one of the smart things about it is you're doing a design from an actual catalogue of parts. So when you're doing a design, uh, the program knows what parts you're using, it knows who the, who the, who the suppliers are, uh, and because of that, you can do costing, you can do ordering, you can do a whole lot of smart things with it because the program knows exactly what parts you've used in your design. That's extraordinary, Mike. I mean, does that suggest that can be used anywhere in Australia? Oh, uh, anywhere in Australia, anywhere in the world, absolutely. Um, if you have a house plan, you can use it. Now, you've gone international in a rather surprising way. Where's that taking you? Where, where are you trading outside? Mostly in New Zealand and South Africa, although I have a smattering of uh, customers throughout Asia and in the US, uh, but really it's taking off mostly in, in New Zealand and South Africa. Now, did you expect that? Well, I knew that it was a, a good product, of course, um, and because you're selling on the internet, it's not you're not really limited by geography. So anyone that can find the product and likes the product can use it. So from that point of view, it's not surprising. But the reason I'm moving into those markets first really is because of word of mouth as much as anything. When I have customers that really love the product and I've got connections um, internationally, uh, then then other people find out about it and then I get sales from those countries, which is really what's happened um, in New Zealand. I've got some customers that love the product and they, they've been heading over to New Zealand selling other products, selling their own products. But when they're going there, they, they say, well, whether or not you buy our stuff, you really need Plandroid because this is awesome. And so that's fantastic. And that's, uh, that gives me that, uh, that credibility and that exposure internationally. And, uh, and that's what's generating sales, I think. I'd imagine the, uh, your target market would be the building industry. Would that be right? Yeah. It's, uh, it, the, the sweet spot for me really is uh, anyone who's running an air conditioning installer company because the program is a design and quoting tool. So the, the guy who's uh, looking to give you a, an air conditioning installation, they'll do the design in Plandroid, and that gives them a really quick and efficient way to do the costing of it. And it also gives the customer uh, a really professional-looking CAD-style drawing, which makes it uh, stand out from the crowd. If they're competing against someone who's done a drawing with a crayon and a bit of graph paper, which is sort of the industry standard at the moment, 
um, then it looks much more professional and uh, gives them that sales edge. But this would be adaptable to almost any kind of a design job, wouldn't it? Absolutely, sure, because you can draw uh, electrical wiring and I'm actually just building a, a lighting module so you can do lighting calculations as well uh, and wire up your lighting. Um, but you can also do uh, plumbing. You can do anything you can do on a house plan. The, the product doesn't yet have functionality for doing things like uh, laying out tiles and carpets and uh, and things like that. But that's always been in the back of my mind to get to that point as well eventually. How have you financed the business? Um, originally, when I started, I financed by uh, living on a shoestring. <laughs> so it was I was working really hard for probably two years before I had any product um, that I could really validate in the market and sell. Uh, and for those two years, I just uh, didn't buy much and lived off my savings and believed in the product and uh, and and uh, and hoped that there was going to be a customer for me. But you really need that customer to get some validation. So the software itself uh, is that proprietary? Have you developed it yourself? I've developed it myself. Yep. Now, is this the, you've got other products as well? I think, haven't you? My my company came really from my I set up a my, set up myself as a sole trader. Um, when I had uh, my previous engineering career, really. Uh, so my background is in uh, is in software in automate in the automotive industry. So I, I really did a lot in the uh, uh, crash simulation um, sort of area. I worked in Europe in that area. Um, so I started doing a bit of consulting in that in that realm. But I really I wanted to have a product. I didn't want to just sell my time. I wanted to have a product. So. Uh, so the company sort of morphed from that consulting uh, type of service into into what I'm doing now, which is really working hard on this uh, on my air conditioning software. So now earlier on, we were talking about Star Wars, and you said yeah. you had an angle on that. <laughs> yes. Well, when I first registered my my trademark, Plandroid, um, of course, uh, George Lucas, who is famously litigious. Uh, went after me because apparently he has a trademark on the word droid. So I had a very long-running uh, legal interaction with uh, with George Lucas's lawyers. But luckily, that ended happily because uh, obviously the word is a, is a portmanteau of, of, of plan, which is the house plan, and android, which sort of represents the, the automation of, of things you can do on a plan. But of course, George Lucas's lawyers thought that it was droid. Uh, so we had a very long-running um, interaction, let's say, <laughs> before we got that sorted out. In the end, it's about simulation, isn't it, all of this? It's a kind of on the edge of virtual reality. Is that true? Yeah, it's a, it's a type of simulation. Simulation is my background, um, of course, and it's a, it's a type of simulation. You're simulating... Uh, in this case, airflow. Uh, in this case, how you can lay your designs. You can change your design very easily because you can just drag and drop components. Um, so it's, it is, in fact, a form of simulation, yeah, which is why uh, you know, um, my, my company name is uh, Delfred Simulation Technology. It came back, came out of the simulation type of, uh, type of focus. Um, but it's sort of design simulation. That's a bit of a grey area where they where one turns into the other. I think. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that you come out of the automotive industry, and of course, the automotive industry is in all sorts of trouble in Australia. So you've actually uh, reskilled in another area. I have, yeah, yeah. So in fact, I was working in the, the automotive industry uh, in Europe, although with a company that was international. So we had offices all around the world. Um, but uh, eventually, the time came where my partner and I decided we we're going to have uh, have children, and she was quite adamant that she wanted to have them back in Australia, which was a fair call. It's where our family is, where our roots are. Um, so we had to sort of pull up sticks internationally and come back, and then I was sort of looking for a, a new angle. So that's why I 
I took a took on a new challenge and looked for something to do for myself. Is there anything like this in the world? I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary. Nothing exactly like it, which is why I have a niche. Um, there are a number of air conditioning tools that are very much focused on filling in boxes with numbers uh, to do calculations, and like, and that's really that that's 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 dinosaur land. Like, people can't get numbers right and get things right, and you can't see where you made errors, and uh, it's just awful. But if you can do it graphically, if you can draw something on, it's totally different. You can see exactly if you made a mistake. You can see exactly what you're doing. So that was always the angle I wanted to take. Um, there are a lo- quite a number of products around. If you uh, if you yourself are a, a HVAC engineer, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning engineer, so if you've got engineering credentials and you're very technical and uh, and you can do complicated 3D structures in a in a proper CAD design CAD software for it, then there are tools for that. But there's nothing really that's aimed at uh, at at the domestic to light commercial side of the market where you can do things very easily. Um, so my elevator pitch normally is that uh, you could have a salesman in your business that last week was selling used cars, this week they're selling air conditioning. How are they going to do that? Well, they can do that with Planboard because they can sit down, the program's technical enough that it can do the technical calculations for them, uh, but it's simple enough to use that you just need some computer literacy skills and you can drag and drop, point and click, and you can do your design. So, so in that niche of the market, I think I'm pretty unique. So finally, Mike, what's your pricing structure on, on this? It's, I know it's online, but you've got to send a bill somewhere. <laughs> that's true, yes. My preferred way to be paid is to have customers that love me and tell me how great the product is. That's, that's number one. Uh, but, but money also helps. Um, so it's a, it's a yearly licensed lease. Uh, the, the first year is 1390 Australian dollars uh, for, for the product, and that includes all product releases, it includes uh, catalog maintenance, because that's an uh, important part of the product, uh, and it includes reasonable levels of tech support. And then if you, if you renew the license for subsequent years, you get a 50% discount. So really, it's pretty cheap. It's pretty good value. And uh, a lot of my customers think that that's fantastic. Great. Well, thanks very much, Mike. Great to meet you. And uh, the best of luck because you seem to be having a fair amount of it already. Yeah, no, it's going really well. It's really exciting. Uh, I've just put on my first employee, so I've already doubled my capacity. So uh, no, things are looking really good. Okay. See you later then. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for the chat. Great to talk to you. Well, you wouldn't think that an Australian air conditioning outfit would do so well in the great wide world. And it's all software, which is really great. Yeah, it is indeed. Very smart. That's where everything's going, of course. Wish him luck. And now Nicholas Gruen. The government has forever been tackling issues like Indigenous programs. It's uh, spending $40 million on them, but we don't seem to be getting anywhere. Uh, What's wrong with the decision-making process for programs in general? Well, there's there's so much to be said about this. I mean, firstly, you know, so much of it happens in Canberra. Uh, so that's a kind of a big picture answer. There's a, there's a sort of smaller picture answer, which is that we are not building programs around the evidence. And there's an even more important thing to say, which is that lots of the people running around saying we should have more evidence-based policy seem to think that having evidence-based policy is a pretty straightforward thing. Um, You have a policy, you get an independent evaluation, and then you go on that. Evaluation is a whole discipline like economics is. In in my humble opinion, it might be a rather healthier one. And most of the big fish, most of the people running around saying we should be more evidence-based in our policy, those people who have together put together a 
fund of $40 million to evalu- for evaluation of Aboriginal programs, I suspect, on the basis of having talked to some of them, that they really are after sort of symbols and trinkets of what an evidence-based policy is. For instance, they'll say we need randomised controlled trials and we need a great deal more than that if we're really to have evidence-based policy. The government, though, keeps calling in economists and lawyers to uh, manage the decisions. I mean, how have they managed so far and uh, what should they actually be doing? Well, well, that's a nice that's a nice thing. So when something goes wrong, if it goes wrong in Aboriginal policy, Don Dale is an example. When something goes wrong with, let's say, some children die um, when when child protection is seen to have failed those children, uh, what do we do? We take a profession, youth workers or or um, childcare workers uh, or people in department social workers trying to protect children from, from dysfunctional families. Those those professions are paid, if they're lucky, hundreds of dollars a day. And then we have some lawyers fly in and they're paid thousands of dollars a day. Do they know anything about the subject? Well, no, not really. They go through a particular routine of legitimation from their own discipline and they dress up in funny clothes and we get a big fat report and it's not a very it doesn't contain the answers because the answers would come from really careful engagement with the material so 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 what do i what do i mean by that uh one of the things that one does in an evaluation of a program often is one looks into what is called program logic or theory of change so you don't just say did the program work it's great if you find programs that work but you've got to but but there is a lot going on and what you really want to do is you want to get knowledge of how thing of what works and how things work out of large programs. So a program logic might have 20, 20 things that are tested. So for instance, if we have a program, say a family mentoring program designed to try to help families who identify as struggling, there might there are all sorts of hypotheses that or all sorts of assumptions that that will have to be based around. For instance, that a that, that a relationship with a mentor family is more efficacious, is a stronger relationship, more likely to be therapeutic than a relation with a social worker. Uh, that mentors can be trained to provide certain kinds of input. That that we can get knowledge back out of those mentors to suggest how to do all this stuff better. Now, all of those things are things that we need to know about if we're going to understand why programs are working, why they're not working, where they're working, where they're not working, and how to make them work better. That's not something which people are thinking about when they make grand pronouncements about evidence-based policy. What they're talking about is to have, say, 10 programs up in the Kimberleys or something like that and a control group and you say, well, this program worked to this extent, uh, which is certainly a good start. It's certainly important to say we need to build whatever progress we, we make around objective knowledge about what's working. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. And it's uh, and that was that that's some of the stuff that I've worked on and suggested a, a, an evaluator general uh, to sit alongside programs to give 
people running the programs and people outside those programs an insight into the kinds of things that are going on inside those programs with a view to trying to learn the lessons more widely and to optimise the programs internally. Well, how do we develop a better evidence base for decision-making then? The way I would like to see this done is to acknowledge that a lot of the measurement that takes place within programs, firstly, it's not causal evidence. It's not evidence that helps us determine what's causing what. It's, it's um, you know, it's like how many visits were made and, and all of it. It's, it's administrative it's administrative information. Secondly, it's important to try to inject some independence into this process. It's very easy for us all to kid ourselves that we're being more effective than we are. And therefore, I think in every program, every program has a monitoring and evaluation uh, part of its, um, if it's any good at all, it will devote some resources to monitoring what it's doing and evaluating what it's doing. And I'm arguing that that, that that function should be provided on a basis that is collaborative but fundament, but essentially independent of the people delivering the program. So it's, a, it's an attempt to get these systems to be self-transparent, if I can use that term. The question is, how do we ensure that this can generate the knowledge that you can transfer to other programs? Well, that, the point is that once it's independent you can make it public. So so the way I look at this is that it, it makes sense for bureaucracies to have a degree of secrecy, for instance, about what they're advising their minister so that the minister can deliberate on it, can get full and frank advice and make a decision. Uh, that's very different to knowing what you're doing, the basic duty of transparency. So the way I would have us learn from what's working and what's not working is to have that that information essentially be public. It's also, it's not going to be very good if it isn't of use to the people delivering the program. But the point of it is that it is actually essentially public unless there are sort of privacy concerns or something like that. The other thing is that I think this is quite important for business because Business tends to, as I said to a group of CFOs, uh, chief financial officers, you're really CEOs, that is chief evaluation officers. You're determining the return on investment of all the functions in your business, and some of those functions are very hard to uh, measure. Uh, how well is how well is finance performing? How well is accounts performing? So these things require a lot of thought to try and work out how we can really get evidence to speak about how well these programs are working. And then there's that second point that you want the information to be independent. So you have audit, then you have internal audit, and the reporting chain of those things don't just go up the don't just go up the normal lines. There are direct reporting chains to the board. The whole point of that is to keep people honest. The whole point of that is to have several eyes to what is happening and in particular to ensure that uh, our view of what going in a particular area is not simply generated by those people in that area. Uh, so so the, the principle is a much more general one. That sounds, uh, that sounds terrific and let's just hope uh, governments do adopt it. Uh, Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. 
So what have you decided about Nicholas? <laughs> well, they're very interesting ideas. Well, he makes a very good point that, you know, we, we just spend so much money and we bring in all these experts and economists and lawyers and we get nowhere. That's and right. He, so he looks at basically what's wrong with the decision-making process. A, lo- a lot, actually. Leadership would be one of it, I think. Now, the news. Leon, what have you got? Well, Gary, first of all, the Governor of the Bank of England has warned that Britain's exit from the European Union will leave Britain with a weaker economy, higher inflation and higher interest rates in the coming years. In a speech to the International Monetary Fund in Washington, Mark Carney said the prospect of Brexit was already having an impact with households reining back their spending and businesses investing less than usual in what otherwise is a positive environment linked to low interest rates, solid global growth and relatively high profit levels. So basically he's saying that Brexit will be hobbling the British economy. Mark, you Brits know about austerity, but this looks like what you'd call a cut too far, doesn't That's it? That's right. Now, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott has flagged crossing the floor and voting against the Turnbull government's clean energy target, raising serious doubts whether the government will be able to implement a clean energy policy. In an interview with his former Chief of Staff Peter Credlin on Sky News on Tuesday night, Mr Abbott described climate change as, quote, very much a third order issue and said Liberal MPs had, in his words, extremely serious reservations about the government's clean energy target and he could see not many of them supporting it. And in an opinion piece published in The Australian yesterday, Mr Abbott said Chief Scientist Alan Finkel's recommendation for a clean energy target should be dropped. He said it was absurd that a country like Australia, with the world's largest readily available resources of coal, gas, uranium, should have some of the world's highest power prices. Basically, it means Tony Abbott doesn't care if he wrecks Australia now, just so long as he can have his revenge on the Liberal Party and Malcolm. Well, this is a real problem, and if the government doesn't get its clean energy target up, they're in serious trouble, and as we are. And Chief Scientist Alan Finkel wants the government to get on with legislating its clean energy target, warning that the longer it took, the greater uncertainty it would create for investors. And speaking at an energy forum in Melbourne this week, he expressed confidence that the government would in the end adopt the clean energy target, one of 50 recommendations made by his review of energy. His recommendation would keep the target at 28% emissions reduction by 2030, extending it out to zero emissions by 2070. Now, some in the coalition have rejected the proposal and the government is reportedly working on a redesign of a clean energy target, allowing high efficiency, low emission coal-fired power plants to receive partial certificates or credits. Dr Finkel warned, however, that delays could open the way for bad decisions and part of the problem he said was a delay would see states and territories setting up their own schemes which might not be optimal and might conflict with what was needed nationally. And this whole thing about clean coal is a furphy because coal is uneconomic now. If you try and make it cleaner, it can only make coal more expensive. Well, as uh, Dr Finkel pointed out, you can set up coal, but businesses don't want to invest in it. No, they're not going to. And that's an issue. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia is becoming more upbeat about the state of the workforce, particularly in states decimated by the downturn in the mining industry. The minutes from the RBA's September meeting, where it held rates steady at 1.5% for a 13 consecutive month noted that employment growth was broadly based, suggesting the adjusted to the end of the mining investment boom was nearing completion. And the RBA said this would eventually see a pickup in wages growth. On the other hand, it said the strengthening Australian dollar could also hamper growth. And once again, the RBA signalled its concern about the level of household debt outpacing the slow growth in household incomes over the preceding few years. And the ANZ has tipped the era of low 
interest rates will end next year. It's predicted the Reserve Bank of Australia will be raising interest rates two times in 2018 by 50 basis points. And ANZ economists David Plank and Felicity Emmett say this would reverse the rate cuts of 2016. So, but what about the poor people who are suffering mortgage stress? Well, that's, this is going to be quite an issue. And this is also quite significant, Gary, because the Fed this morning said they're keeping rates on hold, but they flagged another rate rise at the end of the year and three more next year. So the world is heading in another direction. It is. And of course, the value of our dollar is pinned to all that. Well, the prediction from the ANZ economists will send the dollar up higher. It's already at 81 cents because of the weakness in the greenback. It'll go up much further. Yeah, and that's to worry for exports. Now, in a worrying sign showing how the economy is tracking, ratings agency Moody's and S&P Global have found that more people are struggling to pay off their mortgage. Moody's found that the proportion of Australian residential mortgages more than 30 days in arrears rose to 1.62% in May 2017. That's the highest rate in five years. It's up from 1.50% in May 2016. Mortgage delinquencies increased to record high in the mining states of Western Australia, the Northern Territory and South Australia. They're also up in Queensland, the Australian Capital Territory, over the year to May 2017. And according to S&P Global, delinquent housing loans rose to 1.17% in July, up from 1.15% in June. And delinquent repayments on loans rose 1.11% in July, from 1.08% in June. According to S&P Global, regional banks are doing it particularly hard. Their arrears rose to 2.35% in July, up from 2.30% in June. For the other banks, the increase rose to 0.99% from 0.94% a month earlier, albeit of declining loan balances. They are doing it tough out there, aren't they? That's right. Consumer confidence has bounced... 4.6% 4.6% in the week ending 17th of September on the back of last week's strong job figures. And this has taken the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index to its highest level in eight weeks at 114.8. The rise more than offset the losses of the previous week. Consumers' views towards current and future economic conditions surged 5.8% and 12.9% respectively, while households' views towards current financial conditions rose to its highest level in 15 weeks at 2.6%. Now, these improved results came after last week's figures showing Australia's unemployment rate had remained steady at 5.6% with the creation of 54,000 jobs. Most of them part-time, of course, but nonetheless, it's an increase. It's an increase, yes. Now, cuts to penalty rates, companies scrapping enterprise agreements, wage fraud and freezes will wipe $100 billion off workers' retirement savings. A report from the Australian Institute's Centre for Future Work, the report is Consequences of Wage Suppression of a, for Australia's Superannuation System, released this week, warned that wage suppression will have a long-term impact on the amount that goes into workers' super. It warns that if a level of wage suppression is maintained the aggregate losses on super balances could exceed $100 billion. And the report points to the trend of wage fraud scandals at companies like 7-Eleven, Domino's Pizza and Caltex. It points to Streets Ice Cream, Griffin Coal, Horizon and Murdoch University cancelling enterprise agreements and public sector wage freezes. And also makes it clear that super funds have a responsibility to take action. But difficult, of course. On the other hand, Australian retailers aren't doing much to prepare for Amazon's arrival in Australia. According to the Commonwealth Bank latest Retail Insights report, only 14% of Australian retailers have a strategy in place to deal with Amazon, and only half, that's 51%, are working on a response. And this is despite the fact that 70% are aware that Amazon is coming. Now, almost half the retailers, 52%, now see Amazon as a threat, and that's up slightly from 47% at the start of 2017. And the survey showed that 
33% said they compete with Amazon by offering a better customer experience. 30% said they'd offer better products. But few, hardly any, were planning to outcompete Amazon with some disruptive changes their own. They weren't going to do what Amazon has done. And the survey also found that older shoppers were more likely to be aware of Amazon but less likely to buy from it. But younger shoppers were more likely to buy from it despite having less awareness of it. And these guys ought to look at India where the Indian online giant Flickcart is having terrible trouble with Amazon. Amazon's got 200,000 sellers organised in India to serve 200 million customers. That's right. This is the size of the threat. Well, the other thing they should be aware of is what's happened to Toys R Us yeah. in the US. That's they right. have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and they've cited Amazon as one of the big reasons for their demise because Amazon has the biggest market share of the toys market. And every other market you can possibly think of. That's right. Now, American broadcaster CBS has emerged as a likely winning bidder of the embattled 10 network after creditors voted 10 network t- voted overwhelmingly in favour of the US Giants bid. The vote was another blow for Australian media moguls Lachlan Murdoch and Bruce Gordon and followed Monday's New South Wales Supreme Court decision, which scuttled the attempts to stymie the network sale to stand CBS by dismissing the legal action brought by Wynn Corporation Chief Gordon against 10 Administrator Corda Mentha. Creditors voted not to adjourn the meeting to another date. An adjournment would have opened the way for a vote on the Gordon-Murdoch offer. And then they voted in preference of the CBS vid over the joint Gordon Murdoch bid. And that vote came after CBS had sweetened the offer by raising it from $32 million to more than $40 million. And Mark Corder, the partner of 10 Administrators Corder Mentha, told reporters there had been an overwhelming vote in favour of CBS. 10 receiver and manager Christopher Hill said the outcome had secured 10's future. And the reality is Corder Mentha had favoured the initial CBS bid for 10. Now the CBS deal covers the acquisition of 10, Digital Channel 11, 1 and Digital Platform Template, and Corder Mentha expects the deal to be finalised in the next four to six weeks because the deal is still subject to Foreign Investment Review Board approval. And in the background of all this, it doesn't say much for uh, Lachlan Murdoch's chances of taking over from his dad at the helm of News Limited. This is an issue, quite is, an issue. They're heavy monsters there in, uh, in news, they particularly are. The, uh, the Fox side of it. That's right. TPG Telecom has shown Telstra how it should be done. It posted a 9% lift in full-year profit to $413.8 million, but it's cut its dividend on the back of tighter margins with the National Broadband Network rollout. The telco said the MBN rollout was creating what they called fixed-line residential broadband margin erosion. And while it wanted to increase dividends over time, the board had decided to deploy a greater proportion of its profits in rolling out its mobile networks in Singapore and Australia. It says it's on track in Singapore to achieve nationwide mobile outdoor service coverage before the end of 2018. In Australia, it's entered into agreements to provide mobile coverage in densely populated areas of Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, and this is expected to be complete by mid-2018. As a result, the company plans to pay a final dividend of two cents a share, down 73% on last year, for a full-year payout of 10 cents, and TPG Telecom's interest before interest tax appreciation amortisation rose 8% to $835 million. And I think that's quite a lesson for Telstra, Gary. It is indeed. Is TPG quoted on the market? Yes, it is. So what effect on its shares do we know yet? Uh, they, they haven't been doing that well. They, they've got a long-term strategy. Well, that's right. But if you come, if you drop a dividend that way, I guess the uh, some of the shareholders are going to bail out. That's right. But uh, they, they've got a very long-term strategy. Yeah. And they're, they're looking at it very much in the long term. And Telstra should start doing something like that as well. Now, Gary, that's it for this week. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with Hugh Evans, all about a new style of architects. That's fascinating. Architects are really on the up and up. 
And uh, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we look forward to talking to you next week.